You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. George has practiced, uh, I think, most of his life. He's been teaching mindfulness for 30 years. He's an author of uh, quite a few books. Um, his most recent books are um, A Golden Civilization and the Map of Mindfulness and Transforming Suffering into Wisdom. He's the founder of uh, the Kinder Institute of Life Planning. And uh, I think with that, I will hand it over to you, George. Uh, and I, we can do this any way you like. If you like to do uh, questions at the end, we can uh, we can figure this out as we we'll just uh, do it by the seat of our pants, huh? Yeah, wonderful, wonderful, Robert. I, um, it's become a Zoom world for for me anyway, and probably for you as well. So, uh, I'm uh, I, I was feeling some tears coming to my eyes as you were talking about as you were welcoming me. I'm very touched to be here, and uh, uh, Chicago uh, has not been a major piece in my life, but it was the very first place I went with my very first book to some of your independent bookstores, some 25, 26, 27 years ago, I think. And, uh, and then, of course, Robert and I uh, connected in Hawaii. I think we had some overlapping students, which was really quite wonderful. I was more an itinerant uh, a teacher, and he was uh, landed and settled there. Um, and we followed each other just a little bit now and then. So I was really very touched when uh, when you reached out. I know I sent you an email with a, uh, an article coming from one of the Buddhist uh, journals on my work. Um, I, I thought I'd start with just kind of connecting where we all are and where, where I am right now. Uh, I said I was in Massachusetts. I spent a lot of time, Annie, in, in England. Uh, and uh, probably three or four months a year for many years, and I miss it terribly. I, I still spend uh, time in Hawaii. I have sanghas in each of those locations, um, but my main uh, place uh, of abode is, is Massachusetts. And right now I'm, well, what happened this year, uh, about five months ago, I caught um, a terrible pneumonia, and it was on a, a flight going from going from San Francisco to Maui uh, at the end of December. And I was sitting next to a family from Santa Clara County, so it, there's a remote chance that it was actually the coronavirus. Um, I haven't I haven't been able to be tested, but I had uh, so I had a, a terrible pneumonia that I'm still only about sixty or seventy percent of my way through. But when you get 50% of the way through in terms of the fatigue, you really feel like you know, the end is in sight, which is a, a, a wonderful thing. Um, so I've been here on, we call it Serenity Point. It's a name that the Native Americans gave to this little spit of land that we have that goes out into a small uh, a lake, a large pond. And it's out on the edge of that that I spend most of my days. Uh, my, Probably my main teacher over the last five to ten years was uh, was Zen master Ryokan uh, in Japan. I don't know if you know his work. He was one of the uh, one of the greatest poets in Japanese uh, Zen, and I think one of their greatest uh, Zen masters because he modeled how to live uh, the practice. 
uh, great influence for me. So I, I sit in that, um, in that cabin and much like Rio Ken, I uh, devote much of my time also to writing poetry, um, even though I'm mostly known for having been professionally in the financial world. Uh, so I'll, I'll touch on that as well. I'll touch on all of these uh, things. So I've been spending much of my time out in that cabin sitting and editing my poems. The, the, the next four books I'll be writing will be books of poetry and, and photography. Um, but I'm here uh, in, in my home with my two teenage daughters and my wife. And so we're, we're learning, um, you know, in a, in a wonderful way how to be how to be good friends and how to be better with each other, how to be kinder, how to be, um, uh, how to be present, uh, uh, probably in ways that we've never had the opportunity to be before. Uh, it all started, of course, with a great deal of, of, of terror in the family. I'm 72 years old. In addition to having a history of pneumonia, uh, my wife is uh, 63. Um, and my, my girls are, are 16 and, and used to living a much more active and engaged life. So of course we've been wrestling with, with all of that. Um, as a family, we're practicing uh, together, which is quite wonderful. In the early days, the, the kids would resist, but now we do 30 minutes uh, a day and uh, as a family. And I, of course I've got my own practice out in the, out in the cabin, but, um, uh, and we allow them to do lying down meditation. One of them has chosen to do largely lying down meditation. Uh, but there's been no, in the early days, there was, you know, squabbling or fighting or whatever, and none of that. They've just really welcomed it, uh, which has been, uh, again, a, a real blessing. So there have been blessings in the midst of the, of the horror that we feel around us, the uh, friends that are ill, uh, the, the people that we know who have passed away. Um, uh, people who've lost their jobs, um, uh, the, uh, an economic situation that should never have happened, uh, a, a, uh, a, in my opinion anyway, and, and uh, uh, a health crisis that should never have been uh, this bad. We should have been closer to New Zealand. So I've, I've been active prior to getting pneumonia and continuing on during this time, uh, even with uh, great uh, fatigue, uh, I have, um, I've been very active in the world. I was really on a world tour for my book on a golden civilization. And it was quite wonderful going to, I was mostly called by places who knew my work in, in economics and finance, but I taught them mindfulness. I brought mindfulness to every audience that I, that I came to. And these were audiences, including large audiences in Mumbai, uh, in uh, Hong Kong. Uh, with the uh, protesters marching uh, outside. Uh, and I, I was lucky to be able to spend time uh, with uh, a number of them and bringing the message largely of participative democracy, which I'll also bring up at the end of this in terms of as I move into right speech, right action and right livelihood. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's, it's been a, a, a rich time and the, um, the, the richest thing when I think of all the things that I've done, I'm so, so touched to see and excited to see Robert's uh, and, uh, and June's course, if it's, if it's both of you, I don't know, but on mindfulness and that you've done it for 10 years. Because to me, mindfulness is the, 
uh, is the root of everything. It's the heart of everything. It's the secret jewel. And uh, I'll talk a bit about that. So I just feeling that connection, knowing that mostly I come out of the Vipassana tradition, but I've taught in also Tibetan and, and Zen. Of course, Ryokan was Zen. Um, so I think that gives you a bit of a, a background. What I, I, I love seeing you all, but what I wanted to do with this talk was to give as much as I possibly could uh, in this time. And so what I've done is I've gathered a few images also from uh, in a PowerPoint that I'll be hopping back and forth to because I'd much rather see you uh, than do that. But I think it might be useful for you. And I know that uh, Robert and June have the PowerPoint and if uh, I'd be happy to share it with, uh, with all of you if it's useful, if it's helpful. Um, the, uh, so I'm gonna do a share screen. Would that be all right, Robert and June? Yes, George, please go ahead and, uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know how to do that yet, so. Okay, I'll, I'll see if I can do it, not being a host, but I think I can do it. And again, my heart just goes out to, to all of you. I'm so touched uh, to be here and, and uh, to be from, uh, to, to touch really the whole world in a way. So here we're gonna do a share screen and I'll be, Hopping around a bit to let's just share the desktop and then I will go to this screen, which will I'm going to start with just the beginning PowerPoint slide. So you'll see that it, it starts with a title called Transforming Suffering into Wisdom and Shining Through the Coronavirus Crisis. So I want to talk about, I want to start with shining through um, because I, I love the, the flavor of it. And I've got my two books there that, that Robert mentioned. These are the two books that are really explicitly about a mindfulness practice. So Transforming Suffering into Wisdom is just one teaching after another, all, you know, one page per teaching pretty much. And uh, I'm a ph photographer too, so that's actually a, a photograph from uh, from the pond right from where I, I sit uh, every day. And then a golden civilization and the map of mindfulness where my passion is to bring mindfulness into civilization. How do we do that? How do we create a golden civilization now in our generation? So I'm gonna come to that at the end, but I wanted to start with shining through. So I'm gonna hop to another screen and pardon me for this not being on the, uh, on the PowerPoint, but this is from Hakuin. I'm sure that you've all heard of Hakuin if you haven't uh, 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 been familiar with his work. And I'm gonna read it from my pages here. It's a little easier for me to see, but I hope you can see that. Um, so, uh, and this is classic Hakuin. Hakuin was, uh, of course, the master of the Zen koan. And, uh, uh, but this is, this is how he speaks. When you see something, shine through it. When you hear, shine through what you're hearing. Shine through the five skandhas. Shine through the six fields of sense perception. In front, behind, left and right. Through seven calamities, here we are. Through seven calamities and eight disasters. Become one with radiant vision of the whole body. So important, our whole body. See through all things 
internal and external, shine through them. When this work becomes solid, then let's see if I can move this up here. When this work becomes solid, then perception of reality will be perfectly distinctly clear. Just like looking at the palm of your hand. At this point, while increasing the use of this clear knowing and insight, if you enter awakening, then shine through awakening. If you get into agreeable circumstances, shine through agreeable circumstances. If you fall into adverse circumstances, adverse situations, uh, um, shine through adverse situations. When greed or desire arise, shine through greed and desire. When hatred or anger arise, shine through hatred and anger. When you act out of ignorance, shine through ignorance. When the three poisons of hatred, greed, and ignorance are no more and the mind is pure, shine through that pure mind. At all times, in all places, be it desires, senses, gain, loss, right, wrong, visions of the Buddha or of Dharma, in all things, shine through with your whole body. Gosh, I mean, we could, we could talk, we could just spend the whole time talking about that. Uh, it's, uh, um, it's just, you know, such a wonderful teaching. And as I said, what I want to do is I want to bring, I'm going to maybe overpower you, but I want to bring teaching after teaching. Because I think this time of coronavirus, we require coming back again and again to these great, these great teachings. Quite humbly, <laughs> I'm going to be sharing just a quote. It's going to be so simple and with nothing like the drama of what Hakuin just shared to us, the inspiration of Hakuin. But really very precise because I want, to, I want to move toward talking about mindfulness in a way that is very precise and hopefully will add something to the traditional teaching that I'm sure Robert will be uh, bringing once more uh, in this 10th year of, of, uh, of teaching it. So here again, to share the screen, um, uh, and back to, <laughs> do, do you see, what do you see? Do you see Hakuin? No. Nothing, okay. What do you I see? George Kinder has started screen sharing. Okay, let me just, I'm gonna stop the share, start again. I don't think, I think I'll get this. <laughs> All right. There you go. That's Hakuin, Hakuin. and now I wanna to move to um, the PowerPoint again. So let me yeah. go to this second piece is a quote from, from the Golden Civilization book. The simplest and most practical definition I know of wisdom is that wisdom is the selfless understanding of the present moment and the impermanence that surrounds it. 
Wisdom is the selfless understanding of the present moment and the impermanence that surrounds it. We are, we are so blessed and so lucky to have the, the practice of mindfulness. When, um, when I was writing this, uh, this book, it started out, uh, the first title of the book was a, a banking uh, manifesto because it started back uh, with the crisis in 2008, 2009. And I, was, I, I, had, I had some righteous indignation at what was happening because it had happened in the, um, in the larger community, much larger community, largely through the large institutions. Uh, that I had been part of and thought that I had brought and helped to bring, my purpose was to bring greater integrity and authenticity into that world. And one of the things I re was reflecting on and uh, reflected on a lot was what, what is the, you know, what is the nature of freedom? It's of course something that we reflect on in Buddhism. Uh, what is the nature of freedom? And it's something that in my professional life that I was engaged to bring every client, that every advisor, I've trained advisors now from 30 countries all over the world, in how to bring their clients into their dream of freedom. And much of those dreams of freedom, I mean, they don't know that they're Buddhists, they don't know that they're, uh, but they have dreams of, of integrity, of authenticity, of kindness, of generosity, uh, of great virtue. And we never imposed any of our view. We just went to what their view was. And we showed people, we trained people. My institute has trained people, trained advisors in how to deliver people into their dream of freedom. So I, freedom has meant a lot to me. I thought about it, you know, from the first encounter with Hakuin and with, uh, uh, with the Buddha and with, uh, with Zen and probably much earlier than that, back to very early childhood, I was in fact, uh, from from birth, there were there were uh, experiences that I had that made me passionate about knowing uh, what freedom really meant what it was, and which is why I've been practicing for for fifty years uh, uh, solidly, strongly every day. Um, so freedom, but one of the things that I have reflected on as we as we do this practice, where, where is freedom? Have any of you ever had a moment of freedom in the past? And most of us say, yeah, 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 maybe not, maybe we aren't enlightened or something, but sure, you know, walking the beach, you know, making love, doing something wildly creative, right? All of us, right? We've all had moments of freedom that we feel. Uh, we've experienced them in the past. At least that's what we think. It's a trick question. I ask it of large audiences all over the world. How many of you? And I get everybody to raise their hand. And the truth is that none of us have ever had I've never experienced a moment of freedom in the past. We've only ever experienced freedom in the present moment. That's it. And in fact, we know, you know, that kind of the obvious thing that it's one of these childlike obvious things, but it doesn't show up in, in physics and space time and all of that. The obvious thing is that it's the only experience we've ever had is in the present moment. The first book I wrote is the only book that was not published um, uh, so far. And uh, that was a book really in, in physics. It was a book of subatomic physics and gravitational physics. And, uh, and I 
was fascinated from early on, from, uh, from days of college with maps of space-time and, uh, uh, and the relationship of perhaps consciousness to the, the world out there, the world of physics and all. And one of the things that I um, realized as I reflected on, as I've reflected on freedom in the present moment is that all of our maps and the way we map our world is all mapped with time and space. Another way that time and space is mapped is through our ourselves, our, our identification, our selfing process. So for instance, what are you doing right after this, this uh, Dharma talk? You know, where are you going? Of course, you're not going anywhere, <laughs> but maybe you're going to a different part of your, of your uh, uh, apartment or your home, uh, or maybe, you're maybe you are going out on a walk, uh, but you're mapping that in your mind, in spatially, and also you're mapping it in terms of time. When am I going to do that? And maybe you're recalling the last time you did it and what the, maybe you're going to do it slightly differently or, or whatever. So th that's, that's how, that's how in a way, that's the map of ourselves. It's also the map of civilization. But it, it, that map has the present moment as this ephemeral thing. It's hardly there at all. When we experience moments of freedom, when we, if we're really, if we're shining through, if we're here in this moment, I mean, it's enormous. Yes, it's ephemeral, but it's also vast and extraordinary and filled with light and filled with energy. And if it's all that we ever really experience, it keeps happening again and again and again. So one of my thoughts was, we've got the wrong map. We're using a frame that's not true to our experience. No wonder we get into banking crises. <laughs> no wonder we have you know, political polarization and all this kind of stuff. We don't have the right map. The right map has the present moment at the center and is this flourishing out of the present moment. What would happen if that occurred? And so I, I designed, uh, coming out of this early study that I did of, of physics, and uh, really gravitational physics, those of you who know, who know anything about black, about black holes will see kind of a map of black hole and white hole and what I'm about to share with you, but I'm not gonna go into that, but I designed a map of time and space and self and civilization that is all centered around the present moment rather than taking us to the past and the future where we tend to create selves that cling. So let me take you to that map. I'll share the screen again. And um, Let's see if I can go to it. So that was the wisdom quote. So here it is. Can you see it? Yes? Okay, good. So, um, so I, the, um, what, I, what I'm thinking of is, well, let me describe how this works. And I think it's just simply a tool to keep in mind. So you can see mindfulness written in the map. And mindfulness is this approach that we make in our meditation to the present moment. 
And we make that approach again and again and again. And the more, uh, and the way I think of that present moment is also as a mirror of awakening or a mirror of forgetfulness. So, so often in our lives and in the lives of many uh, 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 people, the, that uh, mirror of forgetfulness has great power, great sway. And so when we bounce back from the present moment, and the Buddha described it as how, as uh, what was it, the uh, uh, circle of the cycle of dependent origination, and how we come back to the present moment out of habit, out of karma, and we forget rather than coming to the present moment uh, in time and space and self and civilization awake and alive. So I think of our work in mindfulness as a work that moves from forgetfulness to awakening. And that the more that we practice, the more awake we re-enter uh, time and space and civilization, and the more awake our creation as we bring ourselves into that world uh, is. So um, I, I wanna say a few things. I'm not gonna talk about this in detail because I could talk about this for days, but I, I, a few things here. The present moment is probably the most powerful thing in the universe because it's the one thing that you can't grasp and hold on to. It, you're just constantly thrown back uh, into the world. And the question is, will you come back into that world with compassion and kindness and awakening, or do you come back into that world in a reactive and unconscious way? So it's a very powerful thing. So that's a great thing for us because as we cultivate mindfulness, we're actually cultivating tremendous energy. I'm gonna talk about that in a moment when we talk about the factors of enlightenment. So we're actually cultivating tremendous energy. But the other thing that we're doing, as we practice mindfulness, just in our meditation, in our 40 minutes a day, our 20 minutes a day, whatever you do, or several hours a day, every time we return to the present moment, we're dropping our thoughts of self. So we are diminishing the habit of selfing by which we navigate time and space. And what we're doing is cultivating selflessness. There's a wonderful, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Daniel Gilbert's work on, on, uh, uh, on happiness and the present moment, but it's called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And what he did was he studied people from uh, cultures all over the world and gave them an app, in fact, uh, an iPhone app, where they were, to, uh, uh, they were pinged in the app every uh, a few times a day. And when they were pinged, they uh, had to answer, they got their iPhone out and they had to you know, look at it. And there were three questions. And the first question is, are you here? Are you present? Uh, yeah, I'm, okay, I'm present. Are you happy or are you unhappy? And you answered that question, happy or unhappy. And then the third question was about, you know, where you, where, what you're doing, you know. And one might think, you know, Robert and I, having spent a good deal of time in Hawaii, that you'd be happier on the beach in Hawaii uh, than you are, you know, you're coming home from a long 10 or 12 hour day, you've still got the 
uh, the dinner to make and the dishes to do and all of that, you'd think you'd be happier. But what Gilbert found with uh, Matthew Killingsworth, who did the study with him, was that in fact, uh, happiness was correlated, not with what you were doing, but with, are you present? Are you here? Or do you have a wandering mind? Uh, and so this is, you know, the incredible thing about mindfulness is it's a training in being here. So in a way, uh, just as the Buddha said, it's a training in freedom and it's a training in, in happiness. But the other thing that I want to mention, another resource, of course, is Daniel Goleman's work. And I forget the title in, um, in, uh, in America. In, in England, it's called Altered, Altered Traits, his most recent book that he wrote with Richie Davidson, who's a great popularizer of mindfulness. And the thing that they, that they do there is so interesting because what they do is they show that the more you practice, the more you uh, uh, gather inside yourself a natural ability uh, uh, of, of virtue, basically. Um, a natural ability to be more generous or to be more compassionate, to have equanimity or tranquility in your life. I think it hasn't been studied, but I think going around the world and talking about a golden civilization in the face of, of uh, some quite undemocratic uh, countries that I was in, that it also creates courage. And clearly in coronavirus, it's one of the things that we need both for ourselves and our families, but also how, what is our engagement with the world? How are we bringing uh, this cultivation of selflessness into the world. What's the difference that it makes? So here, I just want you to see and recognize that what happens from our practice is we create, we're developing great peace, great virtue, and great spirit. Many different words for it. We could use the Brahma Viharis in the classic uh, um, Buddhist tradition. So that's the map of mindfulness. And mindfulness is something, and when you have this way of viewing the world, the world becomes not this, this abstract and, um, and materialistic kind of thing of time and space, but it becomes something that's organic and is alive. So what is happening, the functioning of the universe is becoming awake. It's becoming conscious. That's the nature of the universe, not some abstract, Cartesian breaking up of the world into boxes and cells. It's about wake, waking up and bringing uh, virtue into our world. So I want to bring you one other place and then, uh, uh, and then come back to looking at, at us together. So this, the, the, this is a poem that I wrote a few months ago because I, I wrestled with the seven factors of enlightenment for many years myself and kind of believed the teachings that were out there. And they're mostly teachings about, well, if you have these seven things and they're all in balance, well, then you're much more likely to experience awakening. And I had a wonderful insight into uh, the seven factors. Um, and so I, I wrote a, a poem. Uh, out of this, and I'm going to read it to you, share it, share it with you. Um, I think what I want to say as well is I've put a, 
a photograph. It's a panorama from Serenity Point, this place that I practice every day where I have my, my cabin. And, um, and you can see and feel the nature and the shifting of the fog. And you can almost feel the, uh, the, the humidity, but the coolness of the air. And we, we talked earlier, uh, Hakuin talked about your whole body. And it is whole body. It's about all of our senses coming alive. So the seven factors of enlightenment today, it is so obvious. I have to tell you about awakening. It's all in the moment, in anicca, in impermanence. If you watch each moment closely, that's mindfulness and concentration. So there's one and two factors. That's the first two factors of, of uh, enlightenment. So if you watch each moment closely, that's mindfulness and concentration. I mean, if you keep returning, noticing momentarily, investigating, why just now you wandered, but, but you keep coming back and that thrill of existence and freedom that you feel is nothing but rapture or happiness filled with enormous energy. There is nothing in the world more powerful than the shift of one moment to the next. And now you've completely forgotten yourself, finding tranquility in its stead and complete equanimity whether this moment or the last or the next. It is said, and that's seven, it is said that when the seven factors of enlightenment are in balance, the most powerful moments of transformation are possible. Don't wait. What is there to wait for? It's all in the moment. It's all in the weather we experience every day. Watch each moment closely. That is all that you are meant to do. So again, I'm gonna move rapidly from teaching to teaching. Um, you can see the involvement of the body, of the weather, of being in all of your senses, of shining through everything. But it all starts with mindfulness and concentration. It all starts with the basics of the practice and everything else follows. Um, I don't even think that you have to cultivate those things. There's a lot of teachings now about the Brahma Viharis, about cultivating those things externally. It's very popular and you can, it's wonderful, but I don't think you need to. Uh, if you really go at mindfulness uh, and have your elements of concentration, those, uh, that, those, those concentrative states will arise naturally. That joy will arise naturally. That energy will arise naturally. Uh, but practice, 
with all of your body, all of your senses, fully alive. Um, so the, the next place I want to go, I want to honor the suffering that's happening right now. I want to go for a moment to um, this hardest of places that, um, that we know people who are really suffering in the midst of this. And uh, we all have our, our elements of it ourselves, the sacrifices that we're making. One of my earliest teachings in, uh, in Buddhism was something I called the structure of suffering. And it was basically about, it was how I saw mindfulness could be applied to suffering states and experiences um, uh, it directly. And this was what inspired me not to teach so much from the Brahma Vaharis, the teachings of compassion and, and kindness that are out there, but to teach primarily from the place of mindfulness and bringing mindfulness to those, uh, what I call the structure of suffering. So what I, what I began to realize, and, and this I actually wrote in my first book, the book that I came to Chicago to, uh, uh, to speak at all these bookstores, uh, it was called The Seven Stages of uh, money maturity. So I was in, again, coming out of the money world. Uh, and what a wonderful, I met so many wonderful people at that bookstore. And I don't know if it was close to where your Zen Center is. I don't know Chicago well enough, but it might very well have been. It was an independent bookstore. Um, and the, uh, um, the structure of suffering, what I began to realize from my own practice you know, in all of our meditative practices, we're, our, our practice is to let our thoughts go and come back to, to something. You know, in, in, in Hinduism, it might be coming back to a mantra. Um, uh, the Brahma Viharis are a concentration practice like that. And there's coming back to mantras there as well. And the Christian tradition has uh, coming back to uh, mantras, in, particularly in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Um, so we, but in all traditions, we're letting the thoughts go. Well, mostly, most all, we're letting the thoughts go. In Buddhism, on the seven factors of enlightenment, we have this element of thinking called investigation. But it's, it's instantaneous. It's recognizing how our desire just caught us and took us away from being here. So we recognize that. It's so, such a beautiful thing. Oh, <laughs> and, and, and a humbling thing. And it happens to all of us, and we come back, and then it's just a reminder, come back, come back. Um, how our ver aversion took us away. Instantaneous, we notice it, we come back. So it's teaching us humility, it's teaching us patience, teaching us all of these wonderful virtues. Investigation leads to these virtues, but it's also the concentration itself that's leading us there. And um, so, but the structure of suffering, what I began to realize was that it, every time we suffer, when we feel a terrible uh, anger, uh, which we can all feel at this time, a terrible frustration, a terrible sorrow, and we get hooked by it, what I realized was that the structure of that was identical every time I, I went through that experience. And often, if I get, would really get caught in it, it would be a bit of an obsessive loop. So my, my second, my, my, my book 
uh, really just on mindfulness, I, I showed it to you earlier, transforming suffering into wisdom, is really about that. It's really about that. How do you how do you actually do that work? And the the one of the kind of the roadmaps of that teaching is something that I call the structure of suffering. And what I what I realized going through these experiences and applying mindfulness to places where I was stuck. Um, what I realized was that yes, mindfulness went so far, letting thoughts go. That's cool, good, that's helpful. But I'd still get stuck. The self would still somehow get involved. Somehow I wasn't able to let the thoughts go well enough. And I, I began to realize that there were feelings attached and that these feelings you could identify and think of in different ways. One of the wonderful ways, you know, my, my grounding in physics, one of the wonderful ways to think of thoughts and feelings is the thought is a particle. And it's just arising and passing away like this. But a feeling has an arc, gosh, when we lose someone we love, we have sorrow. And that sorrow just keeps coming back as an arc and it needs to go through a life of its own in order to end. And so I began to realize that, uh, that the structure of suffering for me was a relationship between these thoughts and these feelings. And so what I began to do with my mindfulness practice was to practice mindfulness toward the feelings. So let me show you just kind of the simple graphic that I have, and then we'll come back and talk more about this uh, in terms of this. So again, um, uh, moving on from seven factors to this graphic. Do you see it, the structure of suffering? Yeah, okay. So you can see it, it's a, a, the way I think of it is a jumble of uncomfortable, uh, feelings hooked to our thoughts, our stories, our judgments, our opinions, our beliefs, and the hook. The only way the hook really works is, is through selfing, through I, me, and mine. And even in a time now where we may be um, outraged at uh, authorities, uh, and whether it's through the political crisis that we've been immersed in or whether it's in the coronavirus crisis and the response. There's an I, me, or mine where, whenever we get stuck. I am outraged. I, I, I feel it. How could this happen on my watch? I'm a, I'm a democratic citizen. How could this happen on my watch? Um, we get involved. So the practice is uh, um, what, what I found was that you, you can actually continue to do the practice that we're well-versed in of letting the thoughts go. But there's a lovely practice of actually letting the feelings be. So the mantra is, let your thoughts go, let your feelings be. And that allows this arc of emotion. It's really, it's like a bell curve. Uh, this arc of emotion that moves to a peak, a crescendo, and then diminishes. Sometimes if we're lucky, just letting the thoughts go and letting the self go, it all passes away. But sometimes we, we feel, we, we get hooked by it. And it's a wonderfully humbling and human experience 
to feel these feelings as moment by moment sensations and, as, and honoring them as part of who we are not trying to get rid of them, not wanting to get rid of them. Yes, we want the structure of suffering is not helpful, not helpful at all. But if we can let the thoughts go and pull the plug on the self, those feelings can give us a kind of information, but even more, they can expand our humanity because that sorrow that we're feeling, that rage that we're feeling is something that in fact is connecting us to all of humanity at this point. And that's a wonderful thing. So it's not to act on those feelings. When we let the thoughts go and let the feelings be, what happens is we get the clarity to shine through. We get the clarity to shine through. But we're there with our, the fullness of our compassion. This is, again, why I teach the feeling of compassion and kindness and generosity through the mindfulness practice. By just opening, really opening to those feelings, we have the capacity to, uh, to be with each other uh, in ways that brings the heart right there, along with the clear mind that is shining through. So I wanted to give that, that basic practice. Let your thoughts go, let your feelings be. And be willing to take that on as a practice. I, I sometimes would practice for several hours when I would get really, 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 really stuck. But it would be something that normally might take me a couple of weeks of being upset about something and I'd be done with it from the practice. Um, sometimes in a matter of moments, sometimes in a couple of hours. Um, but it was really allowing the feelings to be part of who I am and to have their own nature, not hooked to stories that the self imposes. So that's, that's the next teaching. And I want to move from there to my final teaching of this morning. And, um, and this comes from the golden civilization work that I've been doing and taking out into the world. As I said, I was outraged 10 years ago and I started writing a book, it took me a long time. At one point it was 1400 pages and I looked at it and I went, oh no, you know, and that's not me. And I thought, well, who is that? And I thought, well, that's an historian or an economist or a journalist, that ain't me. So I actually went to the book and I picked it up and I threw it in the trash can. I just threw it away and started all over again. And, uh, you know, I went back to the Word document and, I, and what I thought, well, well, who is me? You know, it's a, a classic uh, Zen kind of question. And I realized that, I, uh, that what I've done all these years is what I've mostly done is inspired people and inspired people to move toward freedom. And I thought, well, so what do I do? There must be something inspirational in those 1400 pages. And I pulled out 90 pages of it and uh, that became the basis of the book, uh, which is called A Golden Civilization and the Map of Mindfulness. There's a lot of economics in it, which is my background, uh, a lot of democracy in it, uh, a lot about media and leadership. So there's a lot of stuff being out in the world. Um, what, and I've talked about the map of mindfulness. I uh, have come to feel that right speech, right action, and right livelihood, a lot of the ways that we've been teaching it is that 
it's mainly there to keep us kind of humble and kind, which is wonderful. It's very important to be humble and kind. But, the, um, but two things that I would raise as counterpoint and as other, other elements of the teaching. When the Buddha talked about kindness in right speech, he talk, also talked about truth. And so, um, and, and, uh, and I think that kindness is appropriate to everyone we know and everyone we meet, everyone we meet. When we're dealing with institutions of power, hierarchies of power, we've had 250 years of extraordinary creativity coming out of the industrial revolution. If it was really the right system, and I think it needs to be tweaked. If it was really the right system, wouldn't we by now be finding in every hierarchy of power that gets developed, wisdom at the top, the best of humanity, wisdom and compassion at the top of every hierarchy of power. Wouldn't that have happened? Wouldn't we be seeing that? So something's not quite right. We've got a lot of ingenuity, a lot of freedom, a lot of creativity, but something's not developing that. So that, that's where my focus has gone, and I don't have time to cover that a lot with you, but I want to say that that's really what I'm uh, passionate about, is creating the structures that will make that happen, because it's time. We know wisdom, and we know compassion. And when I travel the world, people bring up anger and greed as the two main obstacles, or rather fear and greed as the two main obstacles. They're not Buddhist, they, they, but they know what the obstacles are. And they also know what, what, what uh, a world of truth looks like. So, um, so when I think of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, I think of two things. One is that it's kind, certainly kindness to all that we encounter but it also means speaking truth to power. And the other piece of this in terms of speaking truth to power is that the Buddha, in the Buddhist time, the Buddhist time, democracy was not part of that time. When we created democracy and suddenly had a vote, suddenly had an influence, suddenly had a say, it meant that part of our right livelihood is being democratic citizens, is participating in our democracy. And what I have come to realize and in this 10 year journey of, I mean, it's been horrible if you can imagine just having to read the news constantly uh, as I wrote this book, um, uh, been the most difficult uh, book that I, I wrote, but um, uh, um, where was I on this? The, the um, speaking truth to power, um, I've lost exactly where I was going here, pardon me. Um, Participation. I, yes, thank you. That's exactly where I was going. Participative democracy. What I realized was that um, it, it's more than the vote. We haven't, voting isn't working. Uh, uh, we get somewhat what we want, but we know that money has influenced our voting has influenced the power. We know that the politicians work six hours a day to uh, uh, cultivate money rather than to serve us. And so 
what, what I thought was maybe there's a structure of participative democracy coming out of the work I've done in this life planning movement, the financial movement of delivering people into freedom. And my thought was, it's time to deliver civilization into freedom. It's time to make it happen. And uh, not to wait until next year, a hundred years from now, to stop compromising, and but to create enough kind of virtual seeds of uh, conversation that we could all say, nope, we want we want to have a golden civilization. So let me show you, if I may. Does that make sense to you? That, that what I'm saying? Let Let me show you the uh, the structure that comes out of the work I did. Let's see if there's anything else. So I've been uh, taking this structure all over the world and doing Zoom calls and trying to stimulate ongoing conversation in communities all over the world. Um, uh, so, and you can see there's a website there, agoldencivilization.com. I'm pretty, pretty well known on Google. So you can Google me as well. And um, uh, so the, the structure of these conversations is three flip charts. And those, uh, the, the, uh, the first flip chart is what's your vision? And it's calling out from everybody. What, 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 what would your vision be of a golden civilization? And just getting the words coming out and then asking people, okay, so if we were to create that, how would that be? And people, of course, are very excited and thrilled that we might be able to create it, given that people all over the world are visioning. And what's surprising, here we are in this world of polarization, but what you find when you do this visioning is the visioning, the, the words in the vision are, are 95, 98, 99% overlapping. Because we in our hearts know the community and kindness and equality and freedom and uh, uh, collaboration and uh, all of these things are things that we all believe in. Good health, healthy planet, all of these things. So it's really quite amazing. So then we go to the obstacles. And of course, there you begin to get into some of the differences, but the obstacles are all uh, uh, either internal. I mean, there's racism and, and uh, you know, belief systems greed and uh, fear and anger um, uh, and the outer obstacles, oh, money and the, the curse of money in a way and hierarchies of power, whether they're corporate or they're governmental or they're nonprofit. So it's the same structure. And here, if we had time, I'd call out from all of you uh, terms, but I think I want to move to question and answer shortly. So I just call it out and we'd all, in fact, we'd chat it. We'd chat, what do you see in the vision? type it in and then read it out and go, yes, this is right. This is what our community stands for. And what are the obstacles? And then you put them out and you go, yeah, this is right. And in a longer session, we kind of vote on the obstacles. What are the most important obstacles for us to face as a community uh, or as a world? So it's a, and, uh, and then under actions, actions are very cool because we divide actions into actions that could be global, we all know, that we want to take global action. And, but they're also, they, they could be local, national, we've got national actions we want to take, but there's local actions that you all were talking about uh, that you're doing in your community right now. 
uh, as part of your group. And, but then there are individual actions, the actions of kindness, of connection, of uh, reaching out, of, of, of our mindfulness practice. And action is divided in two. So there's actions just in general, and then commitments. So we end these conversations with people sharing what commitments they're willing to make uh, between now and the next meeting, which we aim to have every couple of weeks or once a month. So we'll come back and we'll revisit, you know, how are we doing on those obstacles? How are we doing on those commitments? We'll start with a good, strong meditation practice. What I love most is having about half of it in mindfulness practice and then half of it in golden civilization practice. And what we're starting to do is connect groups around the world who are, some groups are really passionate about the environment. Uh, right now, obviously there's a lot of energy around coronavirus. But the other thing is many people feel as I feel that this election is probably the most important election America has ever had. And so there's a focus on the election as well. Um, there are folk, folk, uh, so uh, we're beginning to kind of connect and wh what are the resources for all of these things, which is a, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful thing. Um, so uh, I'm wondering if there's anything else I, I've left. I think you can see how the, these golden civilization conversations be can become a vehicle for holding also the various groups together. There are groups that are concerned with social justice, groups that are concerned with, with uh, politics, groups that are concerned with the environment. Um, is there a way, an umbrella, that we can all come together and acknowledge that we're in this together? Um, let's not fight for resources, but acknowledge instead that we're gonna create a golden civilization. And the, the, what, I, what I do and what our theme is, let's do it in one generation. So the focus is not wait, not do it two generations, three generations, let's do it now in one generation and then map out with our great planning minds, how do we need to do that? And so my notion is that the first thing we need to do, I mean, obviously mindfulness practice is huge, but second to that is creating um, enough of a, a virtual commitment that we want to make this change happen. We want a golden civilization. And it's never hierarchical. It's never one vision. It's not my vision. It's not Robert Sajun's vision. It's not any of our vision. It's all of us together. This is the beauty of this. Um, uh, working decentralized, but coming together uh, in a lovely way. So that's, that's my life at 72. Now I get to do it on Zoom. And, uh, and I'd love, you know, if any of you want to uh, join or experience, I'm happy to uh, create one, either participate through Robert in June or create one any, in any of your communities uh, or help you create them. We've got lots of resources that show how to do it. Um, so uh, lovely to do that. Uh, and uh, I think that's it. Come back to mindfulness. The mindfulness is, is the great teacher for all of us. George, um, this is a lovely, lovely, lovely talk. I'm so touched by your words and, and your vision. Uh, it's beautiful. Thank you. Uh, we have a little time for uh, people might want to ask some questions. So if you'll raise your hand, I'll, I'll uh, unmute you or you can unmute yourself. Mark, go ahead. 
Good morning, George. Thank you very much. I'm in Chicago. <laughs> um, my wife and I, I should say. Uh, you know, um, I, I like what you said um, but this, about participation. But this morning we woke up to a rash of horrible, horrible, in the what I call the Twitter storm. Horrible. And not just from uh, the White House. But uh, we're dealing with, right now, tremendous tribalism and such anger from particularly, I think, the right side. Just uh, extreme vitriolic, almost hate, spitting hatred. In fact, there was a, someone who talked about being spit at recently. So I want you to talk about that for a moment, if you would. Yeah. I, uh, I love how queens shine through. Um, I mean, there are two, th several things, obviously, Mark. And of course, I was thinking of all of that as I was uh, giving the, uh, the talk today. And my book talks a lot about media. A, I, I think that it's as important that we get money out of media as that we get money out of politics. Uh, and, uh, but I think that the, the shining through is important for each of us, that we need, that the more that we practice, um, the more that we pull our own self out of it, and the more that, and, and one of the reasons that I love the starting with the golden civilization is if we have communities that have a common vision. Some of my communities have people from the uh, kind of the, the right and some of them have people from the left on them, uh, in them. And, and some of them have them both. And what we're finding is yes, there, if, we, if, we, if you go there, you can go there, but really if you, Keep coming back to the vision. The vision is one of kindness. And it is one of, of authenticity. It's one of integrity. You know, one of the things I say over and over again, another pet peeve of mine, is there is no reason on this planet for corruption. None. None at all. No reason in economics for corruption. Let's end it. And everybody agrees. Left, right, center, everybody agrees. Let's end corruption. There's, there's really no reason for war. Uh, uh, there, there's no reason that we have worries about the sustainability of our planet. No reason for that. And on these things, you've got agreement at huge percentage, high percentage level. So yeah, there are a few areas where there's sharp disagreement and we can get hooked by the media powers of the great institutions that govern that media or the billionaires that govern that media that drive us into a frenzy. Anyway, so keep the golden civilization in front of you. Keep your practice of shining through in front of you and, and uh, keep engaging. It's very important time for us to engage, uh, to reflect. The world needs vision for how we're gonna come out of this. It's so important. Anyone else have a question? Uh, Eve? Yeah, so I, um, I was too was moved by your, your vision, um, but I'm wondering, um, you know, when you're talking about creating conversations and creating community and participatory democracy, um, so where, where is the Sangha in that? Um, and, and, and how can we build on our ideas of the Sangha and not just ideas, but but practices. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think for us here at the Zen Center, we've been 
thinking of the sangha as a, a householder sangha um, and trying to figure out what that means and and it's it's talking and listening and bearing witness to each other but it's also who cleans up the zendo yeah beautiful Eve I uh, thank you for bringing that up um, uh, the, the way I've conceived of golden civilizations is that they go it's like mindfulness practice they go anywhere wherever there is a community if the community is your kitchen table with your kids and your partner or your spouse then that's that's where your community is um, and the Sangha is obviously such a powerful community. Um, I'm really honored to be invited to speak here because I know that Sangha is so important to you. And if there's any way that I can contribute if, uh, uh, to uh, making a golden civilization conversation, something that actually happens uh, at your Chicago-based Sangha, I'd be happy and, and has some uh, sticking power as part of what the Sangha is all about, visioning how you want to come out and, and uh, the larger vision. I'd be happy, I'd be delighted to contribute uh, uh, to that. So um, I, I think the Sangha is the most important thing uh, after mindfulness practice because uh, it's what enables us then to reach out. and. Each of us is reaching out. We're not reaching out just as a, as a hierarchical sangha. We're reaching out as individual people that are moving toward awakening, uh, that are making a difference in our own way into the world around us. It's a beautiful thing. Is that, is that helpful? Uh, yes, but yeah, I also meant, you know, not just um, a Zen sangha or even the kind of sangha we're trying to build, but, but the wisdom about sangha and and building community and what that has to say about bridging from from individual meditation practice to you know to a golden civilization yeah so um what we're doing partly because of zoom so many of all of these meetings have to be on zoom now so what we're finding is that people are wanting to come in to various meetings that we have a lot of them are are private in their own community but we try to create uh, some public ones that have a particular focus, but invite people from other communities to come in. So there's this growth of what Sangha means that is global. Um, and the other thing for, for me, because I'm, I'm out in secular communities as well, is how do we bring the practice in? And one of the things that I've suggested in each of these golden civilization communicate, uh, uh, conversations is that regardless of what your tradition is, you start with a mindfulness, a mindfulness practice. Um, and are, are you on the Bridge Alliance website? No, I'm not. I, I'm not aware of it. The Bridge Alliance um, is a website. There's 36 different organizations now that oh, wow. are on it and speaking yeah. to what, what Mark um, was talking about. So they were organizations that started with the desire to bridge the red-blue divide. Yeah. And there are different ways of doing it. There's Ken, Eric Liu's um, group on the, uh, what is it, the um, civic university, building civic conversations. And, and, and there's the Braver Angels people. And also one I found that I really, I like is living room conversations. Yeah. And, and they're pretty open about um, having people come in and structure 
conversations the way they think it's going to be productive. So wonderful. Uh, we we have I, have I have a very small staff. I'm lucky to have a very small a staff at all, uh, but we'll connect. We'll connect with them. Thank you very much. So, uh, George, this has uh, been a, a delightful uh, time with you. Again, I'm so grateful for your uh, being, your generosity and sharing your wisdom with us. And uh, uh, perhaps we can find a way to uh, work together and uh, bring some vision into the world that uh, incorporates uh, your your golden civilization. I love this idea. So. I would be honored and uh, and very pleased, Robert, if we were able to do that. So uh, let, let me know. Okay. So uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Gosho. Gosho. Thank you. Bye, everybody. I think I'll wander away now. <laughs> Bye, George. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Massachusetts. It's been wonderful to be in Chicago for thank a period. Bye, Susan. Bye, June. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody. Well. Yeah. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye, everybody. Take care. Stay healthy. Stay strong. Bye, Annie. Bye. Hi, Eve. Oh, <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> hey, Annie. <laughs>
at Wood Valley. My retreats were all oh, down. Yeah, there. Yeah. And yeah, I, did, I, I did some uh, sessions with Aiken Roshi in, in Wood Valley. Oh, yes, of course. And I actually go way back to Aiken Roshi. My first experience of Zen was back yeah. in, uh, oh, in the was, 70s with Aiken Roshi. He was such a yeah. delightful teacher. Uh, old school. And, and uh, I love that he loved poetry and <laughs> um, uh, but wonderful, wonderful fella. And uh, I spent some time in the Zendo there. Um, we almost moved to that. We almost moved to Maui to take over that Zendo, but it fell through after oh, about a year. Oh, darn. Oh, darn. Well, <laughs> but you've had you've got a great you've got a great thing going. Yeah. We have a lovely Sangha here in, in uh, Chicago. Yeah, it seems it. It seems it. It's been very fortunate for this practice and this uh, the community that we have. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Well, thank you, thank you again. I'll leave you to your back to Massachusetts for me. Thank you, George. Bye bye. Bye bye.